0: Take your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We need to finish a few verses here before Jesus gets a little older. And in Luke chapter 2, we are looking at a very short part of the narrative and really the last event that takes place when Jesus was being dedicated with his parents and the old man named Simeon. Now, I know we talk a lot about being gospel-centered, and that's true. We ought to live lives that are gospel-centered, have our hearts completely and utterly devoted to proclaiming the truth of the gospel and the good news to anyone who will listen. But no one is, of course, more gospel-centered than God. He is thoroughly and perfectly gospel-centered, and everything that he does ultimately illustrates those gospel themes that have become so rich to us as we grow in the Lord. And it's no different here. You might not think there's much in verses 36 through 38. But what happens with this woman named Anna when she is a part of this dedication moment is absolutely remarkable. King of kings and Lord of lords may have been born in a stall in relative obscurity in Bethlehem as the crowds didn't know he was arriving, didn't care. But the way God orchestrates circumstances He uses his providential workings, his power in his providence, to highlight the arrival of his son, the Messiah. And it's absolutely fascinating and marvelous what he does here. Now, follow along as I read these few short verses. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, through the pen, the inspired pen of this meticulous Gentile physician, Luke, you have details shared here that are of interest to us because not only is it that he shared them, but the way that he shares them begins to draw attention to what God is highlighting in this text regarding redemption. All of the details that come together here in the providence of God underscore certain themes about the arrival of the Messiah, the miracle of the incarnation. And God wants us to see the extraordinary details with which he brought him about, the certain events and the names and people that he brought together into this period of about 18 to 24 months in order to mark and underscore the arrival of this most amazing reality, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And just to sort of uh, refresh your memory a little bit, if you've been with us in our study, uh, all of these circumstances around these birth narratives, I'm so thankful they were recorded here by Luke because they're eliminated in the other Gospels to the largest degree. And Luke puts them here as a Gentile, writing, of course, to what will become a a Gentile world that needs to hear the Gospel, both Luke and Acts. Acts. And he puts together the early birth narratives in order to demonstrate what God is providentially doing to call our attention for all eternity to these redemptive realities. The way he does it is staggering. It's orchestrated in a way that you and I could not do. It is the composition of a symphony of circumstances that, that is so miraculous and so providential and full of wonder that it, that is intended, I believe, by Luke to capture our attention to arrest and captivate our attentions as we look at the details, even in such a short narrative that is before us. But just sort of getting on the runway and coming into this passage, you remember that God chose the beginning of the birth narratives in chapter 1 to visit a, a very hopeful and humble couple named Zacharias and Elizabeth from the priestly lineage. And so thematically... God visits this old couple who'd been praying for a child, and God miraculously opens Elizabeth's womb. And because they're of the priestly lineage, the first theme that begins to unfold in the arrival of the Messiah is sacrifice and access to God and repentance, the repentance that would be required. God comes to a priestly couple of the priestly lineage, and in that he is highlighting the themes of access to God and repentance, the only way you can get to God. And then, of course, Zacharias becomes mute because he did not believe what the angel said. That is God highlighting the danger of unbelief. Don't disbelieve one single word that God says. And you remember, six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, she was visited by Mary, and as the cousins came together, there was this expression in her womb which she says, was an expression of joy on the part of her child. And so God introduces that this arrival of the Messiah is going to bring what the angel had said, joy. And then there was holiness thematically highlighted as the angel told Mary that her offspring would be of the Holy Spirit. So a perfection, a righteousness, a holy offspring, a God-man. Man who would be both man and God, who would be perfect and be able to accomplish what we could not. And then you remember at John's birth, Zacharias' mouth was opened and he began to say things. And what did he talk about? He talked about mercy for the humble. He talked about ruin for the proud. Mary said the same thing. Mary talked about God remembering his promise. Same thing Zacharias had said. And she said the same thing. If you're humble, you'll receive mercy. If you're proud, you'll be judged. And so mercy and humility were put together by God. Judgment and pride were put together by God. And then there was redemption, Zechariah said, and forgiveness of sins. Specific terminology to highlight the theme of purchase and the theme of the only way that purchase would come. Your sins must be pardoned by God. God providentially was putting together these circumstances to call our attention to these themes. And then there was the spreading of the gospel. You remember during a sovereignly purposed census. God swelled the crowds in Bethlehem so that when the shepherds and when Mary and Joseph and others had heard about it, those crowds would spread it throughout the land. And then there was the promise being fulfilled. You remember it was Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 said it would be Bethlehem. And so here you have this theme that God always keeps his promises and that's beginning to unfold. And then God sent an army of angels to the hillside around Bethlehem and to a bunch of scruffy sheep herders and they sang and they praised God and what did they tell the shepherds? You go and you find a child in a trough wrapped in cloths and that will be the sign. There's, There's the theme of the only one, the unique one, the one God had marked out and He marked it out this way and He was the one praised by the angels. He was the one that God had sent. And then there was Simeon, whom we've been looking at the last few weeks. And, These themes come alive with Simeon. Here he is praying to God that he would see the Messiah. He'd been promised by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he did. And then when Mary and Joseph come at just that providential moment, the Spirit of God brings Simeon into the temple and he eyewitnesses the incarnate Son of God. And what happens? There are the themes brought together of worship in the temple and sacrifice, access to God. And then Simeon says, I've seen your salvation, which you have prepared. All of this is God's providential way of composing these themes for us and our attention. And that's why when you get to this narrative here, the way that Luke identifies the woman, the specifics of her background, and what happens with regard to this extraordinary providence of Simeon and Anna together in the moment of dedication... It is God's way of once again highlighting what is at stake here. And he makes connections here with backgrounds and names, which we'll look at in a moment. It's absolutely fascinating. And then he makes a connection with regard to what Anna does. She reveals things about purchase. About purchase. Redemption is the term she uses, or is used of her message. So I just want to look at two extraordinary providences here that are brought together by God that put the exclamation point on this entire symphony of God's orchestrated circumstances. It is absolutely magnificent. And the first is just the grace of connections, providential connections by bringing these two people together. First of all, you have Simeon. This is fascinating. And and this will be a bit of a history lesson for you in a few short moments, but pay attention because it's just going to come together as God brings these circumstances together providentially to highlight redemption and the gospel. If you want to know what providence is, providence is how we in theology describe the way God works through normal circumstances and orders his purposes and takes care of all the billions of contingencies in order to, to spotlight and highlight and thematically bring the message of the gospel to lost people. The way he highlights people and names and backgrounds, the way he makes connections all through scripture and has done it for the entirety of Israel's history, let alone our Christian history since Christ's ascension into heaven. God makes connections in his revelation and he does no less here. And the first thing he does is bring Anna and Simeon together. And these two together is a fascinating study when you chase their history around. Simeon was the second son of Jacob and Leah representing the tribe of Simeon. It says later that Anna was from the tribe of Asher who was the eighth son of Jacob and Leah. Both represent, in their names, tribes of Israel. And in terms of Simeon, it's not a great history, eventually. Because after Simeon, or ancient Simeon, was uh, born and then growing up, Genesis 34 says that Shechem came and raped their sister Dinah. And in order to get back at them, Genesis 34 says that Simeon and Levi took it upon themselves to enact justice. And so they called for the, the people of Hamor and Shechem and all the males to be circumcised and so bring them under the, the constraints of the law of God and under threat of judgment for violating it. That's what they said they were doing. But it was a deception because while all the males of Hamor's people, according to Genesis 34, were recovering from circumcision, Simeon and Levi came in while they were weak and slaughtered them. Killed them all. And This was an act of violence and aggression. And later, the Simeonites were known for this act of violence and aggression. Later on, when the people of the Simeonites, generations later, were again in Israel, Numbers 25 says that one of their leaders, Zimri, tried to bring a Minyanite woman into the camp and have her as his own and It was a violation of what God had strictly commanded. And so here the Simeonites were still disobeying God as a tribe and still testing the patience of God. Thankfully, when Zimri brought this Midianite woman into the camp, uh, Phineas saw what was happening and chased them down into their tent, killed them both to honor the law of God. And what it did was it appeased God's wrath. He was going to utterly destroy those Israelites. And he was appeased. Somebody was serious about obeying God. After that, there's not much clear history about this disobedient tribe. They were scattered in the exile, like all the tribes. And having been scattered, there's no indication they ever returned in some recognizable number. You say, why is that important? Because they represent a tribe in the area of Judah, and they represent an exiled tribe later on, a disobedient, violent tribe within Judah, and an exiled one at that. And there's no there's no indication that as a people, they actually returned in toto to Israel. And so even giving Simeon, even here in this first century, giving Simeon a role in the arrival and dedication of the Son of God, hearkens a Jew's mind back to the tribe of the Simeonites, who were... Testing the patience of God. And were an infamous bunch. And in the providence of God here, this sweet man whom God had promised would see the Messiah. That's a remarkable grace, isn't it? It's a remarkable grace that a Simeonite named Simeon, named after the tribe, would pray to God, let me see the Messiah. And then God would answer that prayer in his older age that he would see the Lord's Christ and he would die in peace. By the way, Simeon's name means the Lord has heard. Do you remember when Leah had Simeon, the second son? She had prayed for her womb to be open. Her womb was opened and he was named Simeon. The Lord has heard. What a sweet providence for God to have this person involved in the dedication of the Son of God and his name is Simeon. And every Jew who read it would have thought that was a disobedient people. Could God ever have mercy on some tribes who were that infamous? Do you know what? Revelation 7, verse 7 says that in the, in the tribulation period when God is saving his people, there will be 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes, and Simeon, the tribe, is there. The Simeonite tribe is there. And then God takes Simeon, whose name means God has heard, and immediately in the context here puts him together with Anna. Now, that is once again fascinating because of the way Luke records it. Luke doesn't really give the background of Simeon. He just says his name. You have to chase around the background. Here, Anna's whole background is given. Verse 36, she's Anna, the daughter of Fenuel of the tribe of Asher. By the way, Anna is the Old Testament name Hannah, which some of you ladies who've named your kids Hannah it means grace. Again, another wonderful providence from God. And Luke intends his readers to thematically parallel this Anna with, no doubt, the Hannah of old. Because you remember in these birth narratives, there's parallels with Samuel when Samuel was born to Hannah. And Luke is paralleling the Old Testament account of a godly priest who is called by God to serve, and Jesus, who is the ultimate priest, who's called by God to serve. And both narratives, both Samuel's and Jesus, were parallel here in the mind of the Jew. Both were miraculous births. Hannah had prayed for an open womb, and she received an open womb by God's power. Jesus was a miraculous birth. Both were accompanied by thanksgiving and praise. Samuel was presented in the temple. And uh, his parents were there presenting him for Samuel 1, and 24, as were Mary and Joseph here with Jesus being presented in the temple. Both parents received a blessing, the ancient set of parents and this, these parents here. And in the boyhood of each, Samuel served in his early boyhood beyond his years. And, of course, Luke will go on to tell us what happens to Jesus when he's 12 in the next narrative, which we'll look at next week. What you have here is a parallel. In fact, in 1 Samuel 2, 26, it says of Samuel that he grew in favor with God and man. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, look at verse 30, uh, verse 40. The child, Jesus, grew, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then at age 12, verse 52 says, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men." So... Here he is growing up to the age of 12 in favor with God and men. And after the age of 12, Luke records very similar words. So there are parallels here that Luke intends because God providentially made them happen. Now notice verse 36. She's the daughter of Fenuel. This is fascinating to me, because while I don't want to front-load too much significance into Anna's father's name at the time of Jesus' birth, it's just interesting to me that the name means face of God. The Old Testament version is Penuel, and it means face of God, and it appears in First Chronicles 4, verse 4. And this is what it says. See if you can pick up some of this familiar terminology. Penuel was the father of Gedor, and Ezer the father of Hushah. These were the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrathah, the father of Bethlehem. So you even have Bethlehem Ephrathah in the terminology associated with Penuel, and here God puts sovereignly and providentially a person named Anna whose own father was of the same namesake here in Jerusalem after Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Just some interesting connections that Luke mentions here for that purpose. A Jew would have thought that. Oh, that's really interesting. This is Anna. Her name means grace. Penuel means face of God. And then notice Luke records that she's of the tribe of Asher. As I said, Asher was the eighth son of Jacob and Leah, and Asher's name means happy or blessed. Full of rejoicing. What's significant about Asher? Well, it was it was one of the northern tribes. It was never considered noteworthy, much like the Simeonites. And um, it's interesting in the book of Judges, the Asherites were remembered as living among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So in Judges 1:32, the Asherites, the tribe of Asher, didn't actually obey God either. They tested God's patience. And um, it's interesting that after the exile and during the time of Hezekiah, when he asked for a special Passover ceremony to be put together, he asked for remnants or people from those tribes to come and help. And you know what? First Chronicles says that, the Asherites, a few from the Asherite tribe were loyal to come and help with the Passover, even after all their disobedience, even after not driving out God's people. Second Chronicles rather verse chapter thirty, verses ten and eleven. Some historians tell us that Galilee was probably inhabited by Gentiles by the time of the second century BC, and, and yet there, there were some still coming in from the exile. It's probably true that the Asherites were exiled to, the, to Midian, and there was a king in Media who later allowed them to come back, and some of those loyal Asherites came back in to serve in the temple through the generations, of whom Anna was probably a daughter, loyal in the temple. This is what Luke is drawing to mind. The grace of these providential connections. I mean, look at the names alone. Simeon means God has heard. Anna means grace. Fenuel means the face of God. Asher means blessed and happy. The grace of providential connections in this account as Luke has described it in detail. And then the grace of providential revelations. First, the grace of providential collections, uh, connections. This is fascinating to me that God put all these together. But then, there are some providential revelations. In other words, focused, gospel-centered revelation comes through this woman. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, and then he describes her. In verse 36, in the middle, she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Now, she's called a prophetess. Now, this is very, very important because while you might pass over that, there were some prophetesses in Israel. And even the book of Acts mentions a couple of daughters that were prophetesses. The gift of the Holy Spirit to have divine insight that was hidden from others who did not have this particular gifting and enablement by the Holy Spirit. It was given to this woman named Anna. And it wasn't just a New Testament gift for the... uh, the affirmation of the apostolic message as we see in the New Testament and then died off with the apostles. This is the prophetic gift that was there in the Old Testament when the Spirit of God came upon prophets and gave them divine insights directly from Almighty God and they spoke them. What's fascinating about Anna is that she had done it for so long she was known for the gift. She was known for having the gift and... The reason God uses Anna is because having had the gift that long and expressed it that long, whatever it was she was prophesying, when she would prophesy, it was time enough to be discredited. So now you begin to see the point why God used Anna whatever she declared as directly from the Lord during her long life of worship and sacrifice and service in the temple, there were plenty of opportunities to verify what she had said. And and what she had said was always of divine character. That's why she was known as a prophetess in the temple and she was never booted out. What was the Old Testament test for a prophet or a prophetess? 100% accuracy all the time. Read it in Deuteronomy's Law. 100% accuracy all the time To the detail, well, she'd been a prophetess and known as a prophetess for many, many decades. Whatever it was she did say was divine insight beyond the norm. And the officials in Jerusalem knew that when she spoke, it was verifiable. It came to pass. Never was she ever discredited once. That's why God used her. That's why he providentially brought her. Look at verse 36. She was advanced in years. Um, and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow at the age of 84. The translation is somewhat clunky in in the Greek, and and, uh, that's why some of your translations seem to imply that she might be 84 years old here. But it's just as valid, if you go back to the original construction here, it's just as valid that she may very well be quite a bit older. In fact, if you do a little bit of the math, what it literally says is up to as much as 84 years in her widowhood. That's essentially what it's implying, that she could have lived 84 years as a widow. So if you do the math, let's say she's married at 14 to 17, and then she's seven years with her husband, and then 84 years as a widow, this woman could be 105 to 110 years old at this moment. Decade upon decade upon decade of insights with divine character that have never been refuted, never been unverified, never been debunked you see what God is doing he is making it absolutely impossible that when he providentially brings her up to this moment without having told her that Jesus was in the temple without having told her that Jesus was being dedicated by Mary and Joseph without having told her anything he just brought her up to this place where the Holy Spirit had brought Simeon when God brings all that together he is making it irrefutable proof That this is the Messiah. Irrefutable proof. God's wonderful providence. It reminded me of Luke chapter 5. Look over there for just a moment. (laughs) You remember when Jesus heals the leper? Luke 5 verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean and he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And I love this. And immediately the leprosy left him. Look, there's no stage antics. There's no rehabilitation. There's no supposed healing. The language is clear. Immediately. Look, if that was refutable, somebody would have said, Luke, you're, I was there. It's just not true. You're wrong. Immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus could heal that way. He could heal organic diseases with a word or a touch. Could have healed him with a thought, but the demonstration was for our benefit. Now look at verse 14. And Jesus ordered him, that's a stern command, to tell no one. You're like, "Are you kidding? Tell no one? This is a road show. I was a leper, don't you get it? I was in the community. My wife's great-great-uncle was the first missionary to Lahaina on the island of Maui, to a leper colony there. There's a museum there to this day, and you can go there and see the Baldwin home, and it's a great-great-direct uncle of my wife, and he I've read his biography. And uh, it was written by his great-great-grandson, who wasn't a Christian by then. Totally misunderstood his great-great-grandfather's faith evangelical faith, but ministered to the lepers there. They put them in colonies. They were they they could never come out. And the reason is because if you the idea was that not only was it a disease of the nerves so that you would die from infection for rubbing your nerves off because you didn't have any pain nerves anymore, but it was highly contagious because of that The infection got on everything because you didn't know where you were. You didn't know what to wrap up when as your skin died and your nerve endings died. And infection came. So the colonies were full of it. They isolated them. And that's exactly what happened here. And Jesus says, no, I'm ordering you to tell no one. And notice, he says, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, look, I want an official temple priestly evaluation. And that's exactly what would happen if somebody was healed or somebody's leprosy was cured or in some way they didn't believe they belonged in the colony anymore. They would go to the officials and they had physicians and priestly people who would be in the backside of it and they would do the evaluation. And if there was an official cleansing, you were officially carrying around paper that you were cleansed so that you could go back into the society and no one would shun you. You could do business, you could survive. say, why was Jesus doing this? Because he was making it impossible after the official evaluation and certificate of cleansing. He was making it impossible for the temple religious officials to say, you weren't healed. Then he could go and say, Jesus healed me. Now it's done. They're trapped. Well, look, that's exactly what God is doing by bringing Anna to the dedication of Jesus. He's trapping them. He's trapping them. He's saying, "Look, this is a woman who was never refuted. All her ministry life, everything she said was directly from God, was indeed verifiable." Whatever she said, and she said, Thus saith the Lord, it was verifiable. And for decades she was never refuted, so that she by now, at 100 years old, is a prophetess known in the area, and she's never been thrown out of the temple. Notice, she's never left the temple. Do you know what that means? That means that she was in the service. So when the doors and gates were opened and the ritual services were being held she was there she was respected her credibility was was uh, renowned and She served night and day with fastings and prayers. What is that? She was actually praying with the burden that kept her from the normal course of comforts of life. So in other words, fasting, that's what fasting was. Fasting was a way to set aside the normal comforts of life to pray fervently for burdens. No doubt her greatest burden was, God, please send the Messiah to purchase Israel and your people. She was never questioned in her credibility because of her faithful service. I love it when the Lord does that. Okay, you want to question whether this child is the Messiah? I will put someone there that can't possibly be questioned because she's never been questioned by the religious establishment in her most fundamental role. Verse 38. At that very moment... Now, the translation literally means at that hour, but I I don't think what's happening is Luke is saying about an hour later. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, at the hour of the dedication... God brought Simeon into the temple by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph were right then in God's providence coming up. Simeon takes the child in his arms and says what he says to God, to praise God. I've seen your salvation, which you prepared before all the people, a light to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then he turns to Mary and says, and your heart's going to be pierced because this child causes an ultimatum for the rise and fall of many in Jerusalem, in Israel. During that scene, Luke says, God providentially brought Anna. She came up or was coming up to them. And what was her response? Remember, she's a hundred plus year old prophetess. And she began to return thanks to God. That would have been amazing. Because it's her. She's thanking God for this child. Why are you thanking God for this child? Dedication's going on all the time. You're not coming up. You, the prophetess, aren't coming up here and doing this with every child. You're coming to this child and you're returning thanks to God for this child. And from there, apparently after the Thanksgiving, which Luke does not record, she then spread out. And this is Luke's point. This is why he didn't spend time recording what she said. What he wants to say is she continued then to go from there and looked around the crowds and outside the temple and continued, present tense verb, to begin speaking of him to everyone who was anticipating. Anticipating. Isn't it interesting that Simeon said this child is appointed for an ultimatum and when she goes out, she's looking for anyone who's anticipating. That means that all the people that weren't anticipating a Messiah probably said for the very first time about Anna, I don't believe you. I reject what you say. That child? No. That's Mary and Joseph. That's the carpenter. We know them. We just registered them in the sentence. The census. That child? They're ordinary people. We didn't know about this. The Messiah is coming through the religious leadership. Certainly not this way. We didn't know about it. How could we not know about it? We're the most righteous in Israel. And they would have said to her, not him, and she would have said, I'll not speak to you about it then any further. I'm looking for those I'm speaking it to those who are anticipating. I've given you the message. You reject it. I'm looking for those who are anticipating him. And notice, what are they anticipating? The purchase. It's lutrosis. The ransomer. The one who would purchase Jerusalem. Jerusalem is just another word for Israel. God's people, the center of worship. He's going to buy back worship. He's going to buy back God's people and make them true worshipers. He's going to purchase them. What is the purchase? Obviously, it's the forgiveness of sins because it's salvation in this child. Salvation comes by what Zacharias and Elizabeth had had said and what Mary had said and, and ultimately what Simeon had said through this child. Zacharias had said, by the forgiveness of their sins, chapter 1, verse 77. It's not for the self-righteous. Not for the self-righteous. And so what does God do? He takes all those themes and he, he calls attention to it through the pen of Luke and I'm so glad He did. Hey, when Simeon was there, God brought he together with Mary and Joseph. Simeon says these things about the child and just then this most credible, worthy character woman Parts the crowd, whatever crowd there was, small or great. When I was reading it, I was thinking back to when I was graduating from seminary. And we had a little gathering afterwards and about 200 people on the third floor of this building. And, and uh, I was chatting with someone and there was all these folks around. We were just having a great time of fellowship and then I heard a commotion. I turned around, and the crowd was parting like the Red Sea. And then there was this uh, diminutive, 101-year-old woman named Claire Clint. She was coming down the center, and everyone was parting out of the way because they knew Claire Clint was Claire Clint. At that point, had been teaching Sunday school for over 80 years, faithfully. And she was 101 years old. My wife reminded me. I said she was 100. She said no, she was 101. When that moment happened, and she came up to me, and you know, I I knew her husband or, or her son who sang in the choir, and I uh, I'd been around the ministry a long time, and you know, her family was long, uh, either you know, with the Lord, or but there she was coming through the crowd. She came up to me. I'm I'm of I'm no one of note really, but I'd greeted her on a number of occasions as she did her ministry through the years. She grabbed my hand and she said, Thank you for being faithful. And I thought, Me I'm not the faithful one. You are. Had a big impact on me, and that's what God sometimes intends to do, and that's what he intended to do here. Anna would have had a massive impact on Mary and Joseph. This child. She's speaking of this one and saying He is the one to purchase. To purchase God's people and redeem them. To purchase their worship and save them. And it will be only for the humble because it's only for those who are looking for it. And just to close, do you remember what Paul said in his sermon in Antioch? Now that you have all that in your mind? Listen to what Paul said. Acts 13.23 From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now look, if you were in Israel at the time and you said, Anna, I don't believe you, it's because you didn't believe Israel needed a Savior. Israel just needed to get its act together and be better at the law. And after all, if you were one of the highfalutin religious people in Israel, you were already there and you are making every day demands on God, I should be good enough, you should accept me as I am. Listen, beloved, if you're here today and the gospel for you is some sort of addition of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and some of what you think you are, you are believing a false gospel. There is nothing... In us, worthy. Nothing. People say it all the time. Oh, you know, I, I just don't know if I'm good enough to be saved. I just say to them, great, you're on the right track. Keep going down that path. Because you're not. And the only reason you're asking it like that and self-pitying is because you have somehow become upset that you should be and want to be in and of yourself. Let go of that. Rejoice that you're not good enough, but rejoice that a Savior has been sent who is good enough. He did not undergo decay. God raised him from the dead. When they took him down from the cross, laid him in the tomb, God raised him from the dead. And he's appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And Paul says, and we preach to you the good news. Let it be known, brethren, that through Him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. Freed from what? From having to be good enough for God. From knowing that you'll never be good enough for God. Knowing that you're imperfect. Knowing that your conscience is guilty. Knowing that you're headed for judgment. Freed from those things. Completely. Anna said, that's the one who will purchase Don't you want to be purchased? If you're here today and you're in Christ, then you know. You know that what Paul preached came reality when you believed. It only comes by faith. You don't clean up your life to find Jesus. You come to Him with every bit of mess that it is. And you outright turn from self-reliance. You turn from yourself in faith. Yes, you're going to have to give up worldly, wicked things. Of course, you're turning to Christ as your master. You want to be mastered by holiness and Him. And He gives you the power to do that. You don't clean up your life to come to Christ. But when you come to Christ, you say to Him, you are now master. I bring nothing but my need. And if you... Reject the good news like many in Israel rejected Anna and her testimony? How could you have all of Israel's history, Anna the prophetess, written for you in the scriptures? then Jesus, then his death, then his resurrection, then his exaltation to heaven, then his witnesses, then the church, and then gospel witness all the way down to this particular service and then an exposition of the very things said about Anna. How could you have that and reject it? On what basis? What a testimony of God bringing together amazing connections and revelations through a simple little circumstance doesn't say she said anything to Simeon doesn't say she said anything to Mary and Joseph probably did but what's most recorded is that she began to thank God at over a hundred years old from the tribe of Asher, a disobedient people she was brought back as a loyal remnant in the temple, serving and praying and waiting And God brought her to this moment. What an amazing thing. And what did she talk about? Purchase. God has ransomed His people. What a symphony of praise, amen? Do you know what happened after that? They went home. They went home with all that. And all that we've heard about is Jesus the God-man. Jesus, the Son of God. You know what happens next? Luke records him as a man. And get this, Luke records that he starts to grow and learn how to trust his Heavenly Father while under the influence of the Holy Spirit while on earth. As an example to you and me and how we're to live the Christian life. Does that shock you? God learned. Not his deity, His humanity in his human nature. He humbled himself, became a man that he might learn to believe God in faith as an example to you and I when we wrestled to believe him. And that's what's coming in the narrative. That's why Luke skips all over that stuff about going to Egypt and all that stuff Matthew records. Luke skips it all, goes right to his 12-year-old time period, and then skips it again and goes right to the beginning of his ministry when John the Baptist comes on the scene. Why is Luke doing that? He's wanting to highlight verse 40 and verse 52, and Jesus grew as a man. That's what he's wanting to highlight. He is God. But he's a man and he becomes the perfect one to purchase his people. And that's for next time. Let's bow. Lord, thank you for the grace of this text. Thank you that its theology is rich and we don't need a list of to-dos. We just need to immerse ourselves in such great providence, such miraculous connections and such sweet revelations. Thank you for Zacharias and Elizabeth. Thank you for Mary and... Joseph, thank you for Simeon and Anna. Thank you for the shepherds. Thank you for angelic witnesses, for angelic announcements. Thank you for Luke under your inspiration. And most of all, thank you that having told us about all this in your word, we can believe it because you did come just as you said, just as had been prophesied. And when we have believed in you, we have found freedom from guilt. We are now forgiven of all our sins, and you will not count iniquity against us. Lord, I shudder for those that, like Israel of old, reject such a clear message. And reject you. And they live in their own self-righteous attempts to be good enough, or they, or they live in defiance of your holiness. Pray your mercy upon them, even from this text of Scripture. Send us into the new year with the same message that went all over Jerusalem and Galilee and into Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth that day. May we be the next generation who scatters from this place. To speak of those same things this next year. And may you save many by the truth of it. In your glorious and clear and truthful name we pray. Amen.